1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Migott. Thank you all out there for joining us uh, today. The uh, primary election day is just five days away next Tuesday, but of course early voting is uh, continuing at such a rapid pace that increasingly what we're calling next Tuesday is the final day of voting in the Georgia primary elections. We're going to talk about uh, the early vote and what it may be telling us about who's doing what in terms of the kind of turnout we're seeing. Uh, but we're going to start today with an extraordinary poll, at least I think it's extraordinary, from Fox News about Brian Kemp's uh, extraordinary lead over David Perdue, he, a, a lead of 32 points, according to Fox News. We're going to talk about that, <clears throat> excuse me, with our panel including Mark Nisi, who, uh who is, I think it's fair to say, Mark, the leading journalist in terms of covering matters of elections in Georgia. You have really kept us all informed about everything uh, from uh, the court cases that have gone on ever since the 2020 election and really dating back to the 20. 20- Eighteen gubernatorial election. Uh, You keep us on top of what's happening in early voting and the like. So I'm really happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for being with us, Mark.
2: Thanks for having me. There's so much going on with turnout and election administration and lawsuits and voting rights. So um, there's never a dull moment.
1: Yeah, you got a great beat right now, let's face it. Uh, And we are very fortunate to help us unpack particularly this Fox News poll, two of our favorite political science professors, Professor Amy Steigerwald, Professor of Political Science at Georgia State University. Amy, how are you today? Doing
0: well. It's a gorgeous day and uh, hoping the weather will not get too hot.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, thanks for being here. Alan Abramowitz, Emeritus Professor at Emory University, uh, is also with us. Uh, Alan, how are you?
3: I'm great. It feels like a first day of summer.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I'll tell you what, things are heating up in terms of the primary Mm -hmm. contest as well. Let's start by looking at this Fox news poll. Mark, uh, you know, it wasn't long ago. I think it was when, when I'm not, I don't remember the date that, uh, the AJC published its uh, most recent poll on the governor's race. Um, and in, in your poll, Uh, Kemp certainly had a double-digit lead over Purdue, but now a poll released just yesterday by Fox News has Kemp leading by 32 points. That is kind of staggering uh, to think about, Mark.
2: It's really incredible. I don't think when uh, David Perdue got into this race that many people thought it would be so lopsided. You know, we all thought initially that it might be a very competitive race. And it was for a little while. But what we've seen in the recent weeks is Governor Kemp has really separated himself in all of the polls. None of them really showed that this race is as close as we thought it would be. And of course, polls don't matter. Votes count, matter. So we won't mm-hmm. really know for sure until um, sometime on Tuesday night. But it certainly looks like Governor Kemp has a comfortable margin heading
3: into Election Day.
1: It does. Alan, why don't you weigh in uh, uh, just your initial thoughts about this?
3: Well, I, I think this uh, latest poll uh, is consistent with the trend that we've been seeing in the polls on this race, which is that uh, Kemp has been expanding his his lead over time. Uh, and what I think that reflects is simply that, that David Perdue has failed to make a, a compelling case to Republican voters in the state about why they should fire the incumbent. Uh, that his his whole campaign seems to have been based on uh, resentment at Kemp's failing to uh, do more to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, and that's just not not enough. Uh, he hasn't uh, really pointed out any other serious problems with Kemp's performance that would upset, at least in the minds of you know Republican primary voters. Amy. Hmm.
0: Yes. And just to add on, um, I completely agree with everything that Alan and, and Mark have said so far. But I think um, just to add on to that, the other thing I think that comes in this poll is that um, the former president is perhaps not having as big of an effect on Republican primary voters as he would like. And maybe that some of us were uh, thinking that he may in there. So one of the things that comes in um this particular poll is that, number one, there's not a lot of support for the idea of you're looking for the candidate who's a strong supporter of Trump. But even more so um, of whether or not the endorsement of Donald Trump affects whether or not you're going to support Purdue. Um, perhaps most surprisingly, 36 percent say absolutely no effect at all. And then, right, another 24 percent actually say that'll give them less support for voting for it. So I think the other side of this, which I think really plays into it and is a point that's been brought up um, by people. And Mark, of course, has the data to back it up, that we are seeing a disproportionately high number of people who have voted in previous years in Democratic primaries doing crossover voting into the Republican primary. And that is likely – Aiding, aiding Kemp, aiding other, um, really the the because uh, Patricia Murphy had some reporting on this, the non-Trump supported candidates in these races, and so I think that again is really aiding uh, this kind of breakaway that we're seeing.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of I w- I want to talk about what the early voting numbers and the crossover vote uh, suggest to us in just a minute, but before we get there, I do want to continue kind of uh, looking at this uh, Fox. Uh, poll, Um, because, uh, Mark, you know, uh, Andra Gillespie, uh, on our show uh, the other day, uh, said that she thinks it's a mistake, uh, or at least for her, she doesn't want to try to look at each election, primary election that comes along, Ohio, Pennsylvania, even Georgia next week, and try to decide what it's telling us about the influence of Donald Trump on a given uh, primary uh, date, uh, she instead, as a political scientist, is going to want to look at overall data once the elections are over. So I, I do get that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that what we're learning in Georgia is that Trump support is simply one of a number of factors which Republican voters are uh, take keeping in mind when they go to the polls to vote, Right.
2: That's right. I spent most of the day Monday in Cherokee Mm -hmm. County and Forsyth County talking to Republican voters and asking kind of about their motivations and about high turnout. And we have an article on this topic coming out probably as soon as today. And what voters told me is certainly Trump has an influence, but not as strong as it used to be. I found so many voters who said, yes, of course I support Trump. Um, But then they also said they didn't feel influenced by his endorsement, and they told me they voted for candidates other than Trump candidates. And I think that's to be expected. You know that when you have a leader of the Republican Party in office as president who is notorious for demanding loyalty, that message will filter down to voters. But now that Donald Trump is not in office, I think what we're seeing is voters are reverting back to their more traditional Preferences for candidates. It isn't all about one person at the top of the can at the top of the ballot or at the top of the party. Voters will distribute their votes among the candidates who they feel represent themselves best. So I think we do see um, combinations of voters voting for Kemp and Heis, for example, or um, entirely anti-Trump slate, but still um, voting for very conservative candidates, um, which, uh, to, to be clear, even those who aren't endorsed by Trump are still pretty conservative on the Republican ballot pretty much yeah. universally.
1: Yeah, we still have a lot of Trumpy candidates out there, even if they're not getting Trump's endorsement. Alan, Right, I think that, that that's uh, exactly uh, correct. So uh, we see a similar pattern in other states.
3: Um, so uh, in, in Idaho, for example, uh, uh, the Republican incumbent governor, very conservative Republican, uh, easily uh, uh, defeated a challenge uh, from a Trump-endorsed, a challenger who happens to also be the lieutenant governor. Um, and and uh, but the incumbent won easily, and and I think that's because, uh, as here in Georgia, uh, Republican voters were generally satisfied with the the performance of the incumbent, and uh, op- Trump's opposition is not not sufficient. Uh, to do the trick. Meanwhile, in, in the North Carolina congressional primary, we saw a Trump-endorsed incumbent defeated uh, Madison Cawthorn, and that, and that, that was a case where uh, Trump's endorsement was simply not enough to overcome uh, discontent with uh, with Cawthorn's uh, a generally erratic uh, performance in his job. Mm.
1: So, so mm. Alan, just to continue that in Georgia, what, what I think you would probably say is that Yes, Trump matters to Georgia voters. In fact, in the Fox poll, his approval rating among Georgians is a few points points higher than their approval of of Brian Kemp. But Mm -hmm. what Republican voters are looking at is they think Kemp has played to his base in any number of his legislative actions— um, he has kept the economy moving. Now, in the general election, he's going to be criticized to some extent for uh, not doing more to mitigate COVID, but, but for primary mm-hmm. voters, it's an important uh, part of uh, his message. Uh, so, in mm-hmm. general, voters are looking at him and saying, he's done a really good job. Why would we allow a Donald Trump to tell us not to vote for him, right? That, exactly right. And, and again, I, I
3: think that uh, David Perdue has failed to uh, provide any compelling case uh, for, uh, for Republican voters to get rid of their, their, go- of the, their governor. Uh, and there's also concern, I think, about electability, about the fact that uh, that Kemp probably, in the minds of Republican voters as the incumbent, has the best chance of holding the office, holding on to it in the general election against Stacey Abrams uh, than, than, uh, than David Perdue would.
1: Well, I want to talk about that because I thought this was a really interesting question that Fox posed in their poll. Um, they asked Republican voters this, what is extremely important in your choice of a candidate? And they, what was interesting about that, number one, is that the candidate being a strong Trump supporter— wasn't terribly important. It rated third on the list. So no matter how much you trumpet your support for the former president and believe he was wonderful, that didn't rate very highly in why voters in this poll at least said they were going to choose their candidate. Number one on the list, Amy, 65 percent said we want a candidate who we believe can win in November.
0: Exactly. And one of the lines that we've sort of seen and that Kemp, I think, is going to, you know, continue using is that he, in fact, has beat Stacey Mm. Abrams. In fact, he's the only person so far who has Mm. and can show that he can run a successful race against her, even with uh, her fundraising prowess and, right, the uh, organizing ability that she brings. And so that gives it. And I think, right, also policy wise, right, Kemp is very much aided by coming out of an incredibly successful legislative session where, right, not only did they pass a lot of bills that really uh, played to the kind of right, red meat conservative base, but also ones that brought back in the moderates. Um, There was obviously, right, the raises for all state employees. There were uh, support for teachers and bonuses there. There was the uh, mental health uh, parity bill, the expansion of Medicaid, right? So a lot of issues that really kind of run the gamut across the board there. And again, it's very difficult to say because the, the problem is, or maybe I should say that Purdue does not have an argument that, in fact, Kemp hasn't done a good job on all of these things, or that he would have done, in fact, something different, other than the question of the 2020 election. And I think the other side of it is that a lot of people, right, we see this, want to move past it. It is not surprising that a former president is going to have a high approval rating, period. But, right, especially by members of his own party. But that doesn't, in fact, then translate necessarily to they want to follow those endorsements, especially when the right person who's running has an incredibly deep record to be able to point to.
1: Let, let me, Mark, point out one other uh, uh, f- uh, piece of information that we get from this poll. Again, going to that question that, that Fox asked of Republican voters, what's extremely important to you in choosing a candidate should that uh, candidate support an abortion ban, only 35 percent said that was their uh, a, a main reason, uh, an extremely important reason for picking a candidate. Um, that, even after we know that Georgia passed a law that's one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, even though we've had Republican candidates up and down the ticket uh, scrambling to take the most conservative position on either banning outright abortion or continuing to limit it as much as possible. So it isn't one of the top uh, issues, according to the Fox poll. But I assume it kind of fits into your overall view of a candidate, right? you're on mute mark My, I think you're on on uh view mark on on mute have we lost you um Sam Burmist does we're gonna to try to get mark Niey back mm-hmm. in a minute Alan? what do you make of that it it your view on abortion isn't going to be the reason people vote for you but it certainly is part of the the whole overall package that people are looking at I assume
3: well the, i I would say that uh that that's sort of a uh a necessary but not sufficient reason for Republican primary voters to support a candidate that, that being being perceived as pro-life or um, in favor of uh, imposing uh, severe restrictions on access to abortion is something that it would, would be viewed as a plus by the large majority of Republican primary voters. And I, certainly a, a candidate who is pro-choice is going to have no chance in a republican primary any more than a pro-life candidate would would have a, much of a chance in a democratic primary so it's necessary but not sufficient all, all the leading candidates are pro-life or pro-life in that sense
1: okay uh, i'll tell you what let's mm-hmm. get to a break right now uh, uh one last comment before we do the the uh, fox poll also showed something that isn't at all surprising to any of us uh they show herschel walker with a virtually insurmountable lead in the uh, Senate race. 66% of voters pick him. That's consistent with what we've seen in other polls. 8% support uh, Gary Black. So uh, for all intents and purposes, as we've known for a while, there's no reason to think that Herschel Walker isn't going to go on to the Republican nomination. Um, Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way now and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Emory University's Alan Abramowitz, Georgia State University professor Amy Steigerwald, and AJC reporter Mark Nisi, uh with us for the show uh, today. Mark, we now look at numbers in terms of early voting, and we should remind people tomorrow is the final day for early voting uh, in uh, the primary election. So if you don't want to wait to uh, get out to the polls on Tuesday, then tomorrow's the day to do it. Mark, we've had more than a half million people already cast ballots. That's a pretty amazing number, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it's a record-breaking number for in-person early voting. Actually, we're at 615,000 total votes cast already in Georgia, including 70,000 just yesterday on Wednesday. And these last two days of early voting are usually the biggest um in terms of turnout. So I can see us easily exceeding 750,000 by the end of the week, maybe even higher. And, you know, Election Day is typically about the same amount. That is to say, early voting is about half of total turnout, generally speaking. So I think we're going to have high turnout both these last days of early voting and on Election Day. And it's just been incredible to see all this voter enthusiasm for us with not a presidential candidate on the ballot in a midterm race when it is an intraparty ballot where Republicans are voting for Republicans and Democrats are voting for Democrats, and it's not head-to-head matches between the two parties. And what we're seeing... Is Republicans in particular are the ones going out to vote. Um, They make up about 57% of all ballots cast so far, where Democrats are 42% and nonpartisan about 1%. So um, certainly on the Republican side, they have a more competitive ballot. That might be a factor. And also the Future of the party, you know. I think that voters are thinking about which, what direction does the party go, and what candidates do they want to represent them.
1: So, Mark, um, let's talk a a bit about what you learned when you crunched numbers. um, I think at the beginning of this week, or maybe last week, showing that a fairly substantial number of people who have chosen Democratic ballots in the past. I think you use 2020 as the benchmark for that have instead picked a Republican ballot. You said uh, something like 7% of the total vote, but this was several days ago, uh, were people who crossed over from their previous choice of balloting. Um, have those numbers, have you had a chance to crunch those numbers uh, uh, in the last day or so? Or, and if not, just talk to us about what you think this phenomenon is all about.
2: Sure, I did um, rerun those numbers just yesterday, and it is true that it does hold up that it is about 7% of voters who have cast Republican ballots used Democratic ballots in 2020. And that's a very high rate compared to normal, compared to what we've seen in the past. Um, Normally, it's in the 1% or 2% range of crossover voters. And now we're getting about 7% of Republican Party ballots being cast by Democrats. And I just think there's several things going on, you know, strategic voting. Voters want to vote in a race where they think their vote will count the most. They might want to vote against the Trump-endorsed candidates if they're Democrats, or they just want... More interesting choices. You know, the Republican ballot has these competitive races for governor and Senate and all these statewide offices, while the Democratic ballot doesn't have that, at least at the top of the ticket. You know, Stacey Abrams doesn't have an opponent. Senator Raphael Warnock has one opponent who's much lesser known than he is. And certainly there are competitive races for lieutenant governor, secretary of state and other races on the ballot. But you think about what are most voters looking for? Most voters are looking for or what are the races that are most interesting? How can I make my vote count for the most? And that's why I think you see, you know, it's, it's in excess of 20,000 voters in the Republican primary who voted for Democrats two years ago in that primary.
1: So I would want to hear the, our political scientists uh, comment on this. Amy and then Alan, please talk about this.
0: Um, the number is quite high, and I think that that's an important thing. Now, to back up a second, right? Mm-hmm. Just so I probably most of your listeners know this, but we don't actually have party registration in Georgia. So the way that we're able to determine this is that we can see which ballot somebody requested the previous year and sort of use that as a somewhat really broad proxy for what their sort of likely uh, party registration is. But the problem is, is that because we don't actually have party registration, we don't know. So maybe these are people. But in general, this is a much higher number than we normally see. Sometimes it's usually about one percent, seven percent, of course, is seven times that. Um, And so it does suggest that there is something going on here. We were all sort of talking beforehand that we all anecdotally also know quite a lot of people who've expressed that this is what um, they are doing. A lot of it appears to be at least sort of the stories that I've heard. It really starts with uh, the Secretary of State's race and Brad Raffensperger uh, wanting to show um, support for him and to uh, vote against Jody Heiss and then... Uh, to sort of go there, um, maybe and possibly because that race has really become, uh, Jody Heist is running solely on a platform of the 2020 election, should be overturned. And in fact, that's what he would do if he won that race. And so I think that that is driving it. Now, what effect is it actually going to have? That's what we don't know. Um, It's sort of hard, right? We don't know sort of how people are going to be voting. We don't know what the turnout is going to be Otherwise, um, not surprisingly, right, when we look at sort of the the Georgia votes information coming in, the early voting is, which is normal, predominantly white and over 65. Hmm. Um, So it's about 63 percent white and uh, 56 percent of those who are 65 and older. Um, And where we see sort of new voters coming in are definitely, right, younger voters are much more likely to be those that didn't vote in the last election, um, as well as uh, voters of color. Um, And so partly what we're going to have to see is where does this start to play out, right? Where are these voters, right? Which of the uh, sides are they even going into and what effect is it having? But I think what it perhaps is going to do, right, if these numbers stay – and where we see is either uh, prevent some outright wins, particularly by some of these Trump endorsed candidates, uh, maybe sending it to a runoff, because of course you need 50 plus one um, in order to win the nomination um, or make it you know much more difficult.
3: Right. I mean, I, I think that, that that's exactly right. Um, and uh, I mean, my, my impression as well is that um, these Democrats were crossing over. People voted in, Democratic primary, in the Democratic primary in 2020 were crossing over to vote in the Republican primary this year, are doing so to, uh, to support the candidates that, um, that Trump is opposing, that it's an anti-Trump vote on the part of Democrats. And I think we're going to see that to some extent in the governor's race, uh, where it probably won't matter because Kemp has such a big lead anyway. Where it could make a difference, though, is in the secretary of state race. Um, That's where Brad Raffensperger appeared to be in serious trouble. Um, And in the the polling that we've seen, there hasn't been nearly as much polling on the secretary of state race. Um, The numbers that we've seen from some of the earlier polls, and there's nothing in the Fox News poll on this, um, but from earlier polls, uh, Raffensperger's approval ratings among Republican voters are not very good. Um, he was pretty un, pretty unpopular um, so it looked like he might be in difficulty an incumbent with those kinds of, of low approval numbers within his own party would normally be in a lot of trouble in a primary the question is um, you know will this Democratic crossover vote make a difference and could it put Raffensburger over the top Um and, and that, that's what I'm really interested in, in, in seeing. That, that's the race I'll be watching the most closely. That, In addition to the governor's race, I think the secretary of state race here and in other states, are, those, are, those are crucial races because those are the officials who are generally in charge of running elections. And, um, you know, we, and around the country, there are a number of these um, Republican election deniers with, running with Trump support who are running for secretary of state, and that could potentially have uh, pretty significant consequences when we get to the 2024 election.
1: Um, Mark, you said uh, earlier in the show that you have been out talking to voters, <clears throat> and among other things, you're talking about why they've crossed over. So you're going to add to reporting at Patricia Murphy. Uh, uh, did uh, this week as well. She was out around the state talking about cro- why people crossed over. Just one example, she talked to a, a guy who described himself as a liberal from Atlanta. The quote is, I feel very weird, but I'm also really glad I did it crossed over because I really do feel like democracy on, is on the line. Uh, this voter said he is not a fan of Kemp. But he voted for Kemp because, quote, David Perdue has based his whole campaign around lies. I just don't know where he would take things. He also voted for Brad Raffensperger and said, quote, I feel like Raffensperger while he's from the Republican Party. I do trust he'll conduct elections fairly. He took a stance and stood up to it while while he noticed, of course, that Jody Heiss has been a supporter of the big lie. Mark? Well, I
2: think this just shows the influence of Trump, even after two, almost you know a year and a half since the 2020 election. Um, Democrats don't want to support or they want to make their voice known and their vote known against the Trump candidates. And that's a primary motivation for them crossing over and supporting <laughs> candidates like Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger, both of whom... Um, became a target of Trump after they upheld Georgia's election results. And for Republicans, too, Trump is on their mind. You know, most of the people I talked with are very consistent, conservative voters who do generally like Trump, but don't feel obligated to have to do whatever he says all the time anymore, or as, at least as not, not as much as they used to when he was the leader of the party. And so this is, the fallout. This is the future. We are at this spot in Georgia elections in this very closely divided state where everybody knows their votes count for a lot because in a close election, it could swing on a small number of votes. And so we see voters really trying to get out and express themselves and potentially make a difference one way or another for
3: a variety of candidates. I that's, I'd, I'd agree completely, and um, I, I want to come back and go to uh, uh, something else that was we talked about earlier, that I think is also significant here, and and, th- and that's the electability question, because um, mm-hmm. I think that's also something that is weighing mm-hmm. on some voters' minds um, in in these primary elections, and uh, uh, you know th- th- this is shaping up to be an, an election year in which the uh, you know the political environment. Seems to be quite favorable for Republicans. Uh, Republicans are, you know, the Republicans are in a a pretty strong position to take back the House of Representatives, um, possibly to pick up seats in the U.S. Senate, pick up governorships, and and make other gains around the country. But um, one uh, problem that the Republican Party is facing uh, in a number of of states right now is that. you have candidates running for Republican nominations for crucial positions who uh, are extremists and who are may not be a very electable in, in a general election. Uh, and I think that's something that Republican some Republican voters are, are concerned about. And we saw that in, uh, on Tuesday in Pennsylvania. Uh, in the Pennsylvania primary, the Republicans nominated a candidate for governor who is uh, very extreme. Uh, sort of a a white Christian nationalist candidate, election denier, um, someone who was at the Capitol uh, on January 6th, uh, and he is now the Republican candidate for governor, and the governor in Pennsylvania appoints the secretary of state who runs elections in that state. So I think uh, uh, that what we have here is a situation where uh, we may have a candidate for governor in Pennsylvania on the Republican side who is unelectable. Um, or at least was going to struggle in the general election against the Democratic candidate, who was the incumbent um, uh, Attorney General of the state, who just won the Democratic nomination unopposed. And in the Senate race as well in Pennsylvania, you know we have this deadlock right now be- between uh, Mehmet Oz and uh, McCormick, um, but also two very pro-Trump candidates, quite quite uh, conservative, perhaps too conservative for a state like Pennsylvania. That's a swing state. And uh, this is a crucial Senate race, one of the few competitive, there's about half a dozen or so uh, highly competitive Senate races around the country. This is a Republican, an open seat being vacated by a Republican incumbent, uh, maybe the best pickup opportunity for Democrats uh, in the country. And, And so we have to look at the potential consequences of some of these primaries for what might happen in November.
1: Yeah, I think, Amy, that clearly if you're in the Stacey Abrams camp, You probably would, I think, rather take on David Perdue because he's adopted such extreme positions than Brian Kemp. You know, Perdue's gone so far to the right that he almost makes Kemp look like a moderate, which is far from the reality of who uh, Brian Kemp is. And that's probably a little bit troubling if you're in the uh, Abrams camp. But uh, let's pick up a little bit on what Alan just said. Doug Mastriano wins the Republican nomination for governor. In Pennsylvania, there's Republicans across the country. The National Party is freaking out about this. The RGA, the Republican Governors Association, issued the most tepid statement Mm -hmm. about his victory Mm -hmm. you could possibly do uh, because they really believe that this guy is too extreme uh, for for, uh, general election voters. And one Mm -hmm. more element of that, as Alan points out, You've now got a virtual deadlock in the race for the Senate seat. Mehmet Oz Trump's choice for that seat. The, they're still counting absentee ballots, and the lead is being Mehmet Oz's very slender lead is being cut into vote after vote. Which leads me to wonder how soon will it be before the Trump camp starts talking about a fake election and here we yeah. go again yes well i mean yes, that I, was actually from advice that.
0: to him yesterday i think was that he should declare victory because mm-hmm, then that would be mm-hmm, easier mm-hmm. for them to steal it away from him later mm-hmm. when the mm-hmm. fake votes were counted which of course Malin i, I and not seen not any. fake votes. Mm-hmm. yes yes mm-hmm. no that that actually already mm-hmm. has happened so we're we're already into that world um and i think that this is an important point so ironically one of the things that uh makes Georgia distinct and why, which can be really annoying to a lot of people, but also, especially as we talk about sort of the ability of extreme candidates to win, almost serves as a bulwark against that is that you have to win even the primary with 50 plus one. So if you have a wide open field and you get a plurality of the votes, you don't win unless you're at that 50 plus one benchmark. Right. Instead, you have to go to a runoff. And so what we see, though, in a lot of these other states. So, I mean, the point is, right, is that Mastriano, for example, in Pennsylvania, right, won with a plurality. He did not have a majority of the votes. Right. The rest of the votes were really split among other candidates who were pretty moderate and all spread it out there. And so it ends up that he now goes in with I think it was uh, 37 or 40 percent of Republican primary votes. But that doesn't translate to anywhere near a majority of general election voters, right, especially if many of those general election voters are unwilling to support him. And we are seeing that, right? That's kind sort of the broader thing here of what happens when some of the spring candidates and especially those that are arguing that 2020 should be still to this day overturned, that we should see the actual president deposed and Donald Trump put in place, uh, what kinds of decisions are the Republican Governors Association, the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, right, all of these different national party decisions? What are they going to do? Because they're aware, and we see this in Pennsylvania, that Mastriano is not going to win and that probably is going to lose quite badly. And so they should put their efforts elsewhere. And so we see a possible same thing happening um, in Georgia, too.
1: I got to get to our final break of the show, but we still have a lot more to talk about when we come back on Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every
1: weekday afternoon. Alan Abramowitz is uh, with us along with Amy Steigerwalt and the AJC's Mark Nisi. Uh, Alan, I think before the break you were hoping to weigh in mm. on this sto- this uh, question that we've been talking about, which is these extreme candidates which have won in races like in uh, Pennsylvania, but which yeah. we appear to be heading off in terms of the Georgia governor's race.
3: Well, I, I think what was interesting is that after Donald Trump made that statement about ur- urging Mehmet Oz to declare victory. Uh, and um, and also uh, Trump's talk- talked about the serious problems with the absentee voting in Pennsylvania, which there's, and there's no evidence that there are any really serious problems with it. What's kind of interesting to me is that uh, uh, neither Oz nor McCormick, the two leading candidates, just, uh, took him up on that. Um, and, and they both, in fact, have expressed confidence uh, in the uh, absentee balloting uh, and, and both, I think, feel like they have a chance. To win, so that that's pretty interesting that um, we we don't see them going in that, that that sort of Trump direction. But I think with the nomination of Mastriano in Pennsylvania, it does appear that Republicans, you know, there's a saying about the state of Pennsylvania uh, th- that it's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with Alabama in between. Yep. Um, right. <laughs> and I, I think what the Republican uh, voters and uh, primary voters may be forgetting about. Is 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 uh, the part about Philadelphia and Pittsburgh? It's not just Alabama. If if, if it was Alabama, then Mastriano would probably be uh, a pretty reasonable candidate with a good chance of winning a general election. But in in Pennsylvania, I, I think he's. I mean, it, it's not. You can't say it's inconceivable that he could win in in a very good Republican year. He could win, uh, but I, I think it's much less likely.
1: Mark, let me, I I want to take advantage of your, the the beat that you follow so closely for a couple minutes uh, today. I I will have to say that I think many of us, maybe not many of us, but certainly I'm in this camp, have kind of lost track of how many lawsuits are still in Mm courts over various aspects of Georgia election law. and, and, It isn't so much the count that matters. It's what cases are still pending that you think have the potential to have a serious impact on our elections moving forward.
2: Well, in answer to your question, I do have a count. On my spreadsheet, I have 44 (laughs) active lawsuits involving Georgia voting laws. Now, many of them are on appeal or going nowhere. Um, The ones to watch, we have the Fair Fight trial, which is underway in federal court. This is the case that was filed. Um, by Fair Fight Action after Stacey Abrams' loss in 2018 alleging that Georgia's election policies led to voter disenfranchisement. The other big ones to watch are these 9 or 10 lawsuits over Georgia's voting law, Senate Bill 202 that passed last year. And these lawsuits take aim at pretty much all parts of the law that was passed, everything from election takeovers to photo ID requirements to drop box limitations and the requirement that you have a wet signature on an absentee ballot application, um, which eliminated the ability to apply for an absentee ballot entirely online. Um, There's So much in the voting law that's being challenged and all those cases are moving through the court. Um, We'll see when they come up. Many of these cases have been consolidated for purposes of evidence gathering and discovery. Um, But it's a way ways off from getting any decisions in those cases.
1: Mark, am am I correct that the Fair Fight Action case, which is right now in court actively and which the state tried to have dismissed, Uh, But which is it Steve Jones who's handling this case as well? Federal judge Steve Jones said, no, no, this case will move forward. Is that primarily about exact match? Am, Am I correct about that?
2: Yes. Exact match is one of the three challenged policies. And uh, what exact match is, there are two parts of exact match that are being challenged. One is whether voters should be flagged if there are slight inconsistencies in their name spelling, either hyphens or apostrophes or accent marks or maiden names that don't exactly match what is on voter registration forms and other state records. And so those voters are able to vote if they show ID at the polls, Um, but it can be an extra step for some voters if they want to vote absentee ballot, for example, and they, uh, you know, we do have ID requirements for absentee ballots, but you do need to show ID before you can vote in Georgia. The other part of exact match that's contested in this case is citizenship verification. that's um, considered part of Exact Match, but it's kind of a separate issue. Um, and the issue there is we do have new citizens in the United States and in Georgia all the time, but when they become new citizens, election records often aren't updated unless the voter goes to the effort, him or herself, to update their own voting records. And so um, the case says, well, if they're citizens, they should be allowed to vote. This is an administrative and bureaucratic hurdle that takes away the or limits the voting ability of legitimate and new U.S. citizens that went through the correct process to become citizens citizens. And now on the state side, they say, well, look, we did this citizenship audit. Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger's office did do a citizenship audit. And what that found is that there were some non-citizens who had applied to register to vote over the years, but none had actually voted in recent elections. And what how that came into the court case is it showed that many of the people who were flagged as not being citizens in the state system actually were citizens. So the Secretary of State's office now is going to continue doing this citizenship verification process, which will update the records of um, voters who have become citizens. Although it remains an open question whether that'll be a voluntary process or whether the judge will say you must do this, but Secretary of State Braffensberger has said he will do that on an ongoing basis.
1: Thank you for uh, briefing us on that. Um, we're really glad that you're staying on top of all these lawsuits, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, keeping us informed mm-hmm. about that. Uh, very just briefly, uh, Amy, we should say that the campaign promoting the big lie continues. Uh, the filmmaker. Dinesh D'Souza has a new picture out, another propaganda picture, which is what he makes. This one focuses on ballot harvesting in Georgia. He purports it there to show video of someone stuffing a drop box with uh, ballots that Uh, are harvested from various people. Uh, But, Amy, the state election board, which is not exactly a liberal body, (laughs) uh, looked at these claims and said there's no ballot harvesting. They actually traced back uh, uh, through various means uh, the examples that that this film uh, purports to show and found these were people delivering for family members or others they were entitled to. uh, do. But the big lie continues.
0: Yes. And I think the biggest thing that we're seeing that's coming across sort of with this film with others is that the belief in sort of widespread election fraud is so ingrained for some people that even being presented with very clear evidence that that's not what happened. And in fact, there was no fraud. There were no indications of this. That none of this is chugged out doesn't matter, right? the The argument continues to be, well, we need to keep looking because we'll find it, right? They're in search of something, and part of the problem is is that you can't disprove a negative. You can't be able to show and. You know, again, ironically, right? Georgia, we we had a hand recount. We did two different um, electronic recounts. We have looked through everything. Outside entities have come in and looked at all of the ballots and done multiple. It's been done at the federal level. It's been done at the state level. It's been done in the various counties, and there is no evidence. The problem is that. Um, and this is where uh, psychology and political psychology research tell us over and over again. It's motivated reasoning that if you have a firm belief, it is very difficult to disprove it, even when you're given evidence on the other side. And the question is going to be, how much do those beliefs go into the votes that we see, particularly down ballot?
1: Um, thank you for that, um, Alan. Before we, we were finished. I do want to talk for a couple minutes about Stacey Abrams. We know that uh, all of so much of the action in this election is on the Republican side, mm-hmm. um, but we do need to talk uh, right now for just a couple minutes. Stacey Abrams is in this enviable position, as we've talked about on the show before, not having to worry about an opponent, and therefore is able to define herself in her campaign ads in how she's run her campaign. She's focusing on. Uh, access to health care for all, and now abortion rights. But she's also just released a new commercial in which, which talks about how she was so deeply involved in saving the Georgia film industry. And, and when I first saw this spot, I scratched my head a little bit about it. I couldn't remember how that might have been, you know, what that's backed up by. And then I remembered, uh, after reading an article about it, she actually went to California when uh, film industry people were talking about backing out of the state because of the conservative policies being passed in the legislature and urged them not to do that. So she really does have a legitimate uh, argument to make for that. But the bigger point is it allows her to continue for the time being talking about her her campaign and herself in the most positive terms possible.
3: Well, that, that's exactly right. And I think we've seen that in a number of her ads in which she – talks about uh, herself as uh, someone who knows how to run a business, someone who has run businesses and who is interested in uh, protecting and promoting job creation in Georgia. So she's kind of trying to speak here, I think, to a broad cross-section of voters and to swing voters Mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, Of course, on, on other issues, she's focusing on issues that she's talking about abortion rights and talking about expanding Medicaid. Those are issues that strongly appeal to Democratic base voters as well as some swing voters. So I think she has the luxury here of of trying to reinforce her support among Democratic base voters to try to get them out to vote, but also trying to expand her appeal, which is something that's going to be crucial in a general election against an incumbent governor, which is what, what this is likely shaping up to be.
1: Um, Mark, we also know that she is raising staggering amounts of money. Uh, for a very brief time, she was able to take advantage of this leadership fund that the Republicans in the legislature passed to benefit uh, Brian Kemp. Uh, a, a, the court has now ruled she couldn't do that until she becomes the official nominee. But during that window in which she did, she raised uh, just extraordinary amounts of money. We've uh, we've just lost Mark Niecy's mm-hmm. audio again, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to say. Um, mm-hmm. Mark, are you there? All right. We're having a problem with Mark Mm -hmm. Nisi. I I apologize for that. We are virtually out of time for today's show, uh, in any case. So um, let me just say Mm -hmm. how grateful I am that we did have Mark uh, Nisi Mm -hmm. from the AJC, uh, Amy Steigerwald, Georgia State University, and of course, Alan Abramowitz at Emory University. uh, we put out our new uh, uh, newsletter yesterday. The, new, the new Political Rewind newsletter goes out to inboxes every Wednesday. If you're not subscribing, we'd certainly love to have you do that. And it's easy. You just go to gpb.org slash newsletters, and uh, you can uh, take advantage of our newsletter and get it in your inbox every Wednesday. And I'm very happy to say that Sarah Callis, our intern and Natalie Mendenhall, our senior producer, have begun contributing great uh, pieces uh, to that uh, newsletter. So um, we hope you'll subscribe. Um, we're just about ready to uh, say goodbye to you today. Tomorrow on Political Rewind, we've got up uh, Sam Olins, former Attorney General of the state of Georgia, Michael Thurman, CEO of DeKalb County and political science professor Karen Owen from the University of West Georgia. So we'll have a lot to talk about uh, with them, including this remarkable uh, development in which national PACs are starting to give money to candidates in school board races. The implications of that are really, really interesting. So Alan Abramowitz, Amy Steigerwald, Mark Nisi, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm Bill Nygut, see you tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and stay healthy. Bye everybody. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPRs
2: through Lyon, wherever you get your podcasts.